You're tuning in to the TV Campfire with Caitlin McFarland and Emily Gibson, co-founders and co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival, aka TV Camp for Grownups. This episode is part of our series of special releases recorded live at ATX Season 7. To hear our original The TV Campfire series, please scroll down to episodes 1 through 5. Hi, y'all, and welcome back. The time has come for our last full panel release this fall. Don't worry, there's more on that later, but this one is a special one. Those of you who've been following along for the past few years may remember that this reunion was initially scheduled for 2017, but due to conflicting schedules, i.e. this entire group of talented humans still being very in demand, actually ended up shifting into this year's festival. Sometimes we just like to build suspense. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and while there are two very crucial members of the 30-something family who are not able to make it this year, Ken Olin and Patricia Wedig, who were deeply, deeply missed, we were so touched to have this group at ATX and to see how genuine their connection is after all these years. At one point, I actually walked out of the green room and they were doing this thing that Honestly, a lot of people do at the festival, but what was crazy, none of them had ever come to the festival before. So they didn't have an alum showing them the way. They just did it naturally. They had pulled chairs from all over the hotel and had made a circle in the foyer and were laughing and telling stories and just like very much out in the open, but like very intimate. It was it was a beautiful thing to kind of creepily watch in the corner, I'm just saying. Well, and it's because they're all so <laughs> busy yeah. doing other things now. I mean, most of them are directing which is crazy. Like the entire cast has gone on to be like pretty prolific television directors. Yes. And so they never get to see each other because now they're all working on separate shows. So the thing that I love the most when I get to witness at the festival is when people who deeply love each other and care about each other come together and they're seeing each other as a group for the first time in 30 something years. Which is crazy because they spent so much time together that like it's like your high school friends like the bond is never broken. It's amazing. And in just a minute, you'll hear directly from them some of these incredibly vivid memories of their time on the show and what it felt like to be in the center of this incredibly popular thing that became a cultural touchstone for broadcast television. It's pretty amazing to see how many of them have brought strands of 30-something DNA to so many other series across their careers through the writing and the directing and the producing from Jane the Virgin to This Is Us to Nashville. The list goes on and on and on. So before we go, we want to assure you that we are going to be back in the new year. This is the last one before the holidays, but we have plenty to go back and listen to. If you haven't been listening week to week, if you found us in the last couple of weeks, please go back and listen to the first five. I don't know how many people, this was our first season, so we kind of did two things at once, which was make five original episodes that are in studio, one-on-one -on -one conversations, and then we've been releasing live panels from the festival. While they go together, because even the first five episodes were based on original panels from previous ATX festivals, they are different. And you'll notice that they're different. Um, we sort of surprised ourselves this year. Emily and I talked a lot about it during the festival that we did the podcast because it seemed like a natural evolution of the brand and the festival and to keep conversations going. But man, these original five conversations that we're going to be making a season two of, and you'll be hearing in the new year, they're kind of magic. Um, and it's weird. I, I think at first when we were making them, I thought maybe it just feels like magic to the two of us. We're in the room. You're witnessing conversations. Yeah. But I've gotten a lot of feedback from people of how special, like, say, there's an episode with Marta Kaufman and Hannah Cantor, her daughter. And it really did feel special in the room. It felt like a conversation between one of the greatest television comedy creators of all time. Hello, friends. Um <laughs> For those that don't know, I'm, I might be slightly judging. But it also was a conversation between a mother and daughter that felt like it had never happened before in this way, in exactly this way. And beyond that, they're now co-workers and, and they're both creatives. And there are things to glean from these episodes, whether you're an industry member who wants to know something about pitching or you're a TV fan who wants to know something about Friends or you're just a human being who has a relationship <laughs> with, you know, a coworker or a mother or a friend and and the conversations that we have on a regular basis. So this is an extremely long-winded way of saying if you haven't listened to the first 5 episodes, please do and then beyond that, we cannot stress how important it is to share this podcast with people. The only way to get more people to listen to a podcast is to have 
a friend or a family member or a colleague or somebody that you respect tell you to subscribe to it. And half the time I do it in real time when somebody tells me, you know, you should be listening to Dak Shepard's armchair expert. Okay, hold on. Pause one second. Let me pull out my phone because I'm going to forget to do it. You know, there's also no shame in taking someone's phone from them (laughs) and subscribing subscribing for them and also rating five stars and also commenting from their phone. It's perfectly acceptable social behavior. Uh, Yeah, we greatly encourage it. But it is at the log line of this whole thing is we've really loved making this podcast. We've really loved sharing it with you. There are kind of two parts to this this series, um, the live ones and the original ones. And we would just love if you would keep listening, come back for season two and and please tell somebody because it's the way that we can keep making more of it. Self, we're being selfish, Emily. We want to make more. <laughs> we are. But also, if you have feedback or questions for us or you just want to let us know that you've been listening and like what you hear, do leave us a comment on iTunes. It really mm-hmm. does help. And however iTunes algorithms work, mm-hmm. it helps bump it up to the top of searches if people are searching for similar themed podcast. Um, they can just find it easier. Mm-hmm. And then you can also find us at, at ATX Festival on Twitter or Instagram and help us spread the word. And we'll keep doing our best to bring you one-of-a-kind conversations. And now, without further ado, settle in, pull up a log, and join us for 30-something years later, featuring Marshall Herskovitz, Edward Zwick, Timothy Busfield, Polly Draper, Melanie Mayron, Peter Horton, and David Clennon. Hi, I'm Bill Keith from Entertainment Weekly. I'm not the person you came to see today, but I uh, will bring everybody out. How great was it to hear that music again? And everyone was just excited backstage to hear it too, sincerely. So uh, I'd love to bring everybody out, starting out with the creators, Marshall Herskovitz and Ed Zwick. Uh, Polly Draper. Timothy Busfield. David Clennon. Melanie Mayron and Peter Horton. Alive. He's alive. <laughs> Peter uh, joked to me earlier when I was coming out here and asked if I drew the short straw to have to do this panel, and I, I told him very correctly that everyone was fighting to do this panel in my office, and there are a lot of people in the audience who confessed to me that they're supposed to be somewhere else right now. There are executives who have TV shows on other panels happening right now, and they are here instead. So there's so much love for 30-something. And the great thing about the audience at ATX is that everyone loves to get granular and hear the sort of how Bill becomes a law type stuff. So I'd love to just start off with where did this come from? Where's the germ of the idea for the show? Okay. (laughs) Uh, Ed and I had a deal at MGM Television but we wanted to make movies, so we didn't want to make a television series, but we were supposed to try to come up with one. So uh, we had a a network meeting coming up and we had thought of all these bad ideas and we looked at each other and we said, you know, what if we sold one of these bad ideas? We'd have to make it. That would be (laughs) awful. So I actually set about a goal. I said, what we need is a show that we'd like to do that has no chance of ever going. (laughs) And we sat down, and out of that came this idea of, well, why don't we just talk about people we know, since no one's going to be interested in people we know. Um, And that was the genesis, essentially. I mean, you can take it from there. Yeah, I mean, I I had just made my first movie and and thought that that was going to be my life, and that was certainly um, our intention together. Um, But, of course, what happens to, to a writer, and and as you create something, you create the beast, and then you fall in love with the beast, and then you want to serve the beast, and 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 we walked into this room full of executives who, just coincidentally, uh, had the same issues, the same context that we did about our lives, and we did not pitch it in any conventional way, so as to say it was this great story. In fact, we just talked about what was happening in our lives. And that was mirrored in what was happening in their lives. And before we knew it, we wrote this draft. They looked at it. They didn't ask us to rewrite it. They said, shoot it. We went and found these extraordinary people. And all of a sudden, we were 
in the center of a, of a whirlwind. So there was, there was no sort of question of, but we've never seen anything like this. How do we, what's your comp? Like, what is this, if we're trying to sell this to the network? Well, one thing you have to understand is at the moment, you know, there were only cops and lawyers and doctors. There were only franchise shows. And um, the network was in the toilet. They, they just didn't know what else to do. They thought, oh, we might as well try this. That's kind of a great spot to be in, right? So it's sort of like, do, do what you will, because we haven't figured it out ourselves. We, we've always thrived in that position, actually. We've done other things at networks at that we, who at that moment were in the toilet. But we wrestled with this, by the way. The two of us wrestled with how do you do a series where there's no hook, you know? And in fact, we credit Ed's wife, as a matter of fact, because we were sitting in our office, you know, desperately trying to imagine, like, well, then what are the stories are about, you know? And, and uh, we couldn't quite get it. So in those days, you know, if you spent three hours in the office, that was a long day. And, you know, we went home to his house and we told his wife, Liberty, this weird idea we had. And she went, oh, that's so great. You know, we have this friend whose name actually was Gary, and, and we have this other friend doing this and that. And she said, you know, this person's afraid to have kids. You, you know, she kind of filled it in, and it was her enthusiasm, I think, that made us imagine that somehow you could do this thing when there was no sort of groundwork that was recognizable for television of how you make that into a series. I'd love to hear from the actors sort of how you were pitched it, either from an agent or from these guys, just sort of how is it explained to you uh, at the first blush of it? I thought it was a movie. I didn't know it was a TV show. <laughs> I just get an, an something for an audition and I would go in for it and I thought this was a movie and because it, it was so, it was written not like a TV show. It was so well written, it was so um, intricate and so uh, different from anything I'd seen that wasn't a movie. So I just went in on the premise that I was going to do a movie. <laughs> so I was, uh, it was uh, all under false pretenses. <laughs> I'd moved to Sacramento at the end of a show called Trapper John M.D. And I started, yeah, thank you. Uh, one of those doctor cop shows that they were talking about. <laughs> And uh, I had Revenge of the Nerds 2, we knew we were gonna make, and I was focused on my theater, and I'd said to my agent, I'm not really interested in doing TV, and then she said, there's a script coming, I think you'll like it, it's a TV show, and I said, oh, I better. And I read it, and I was like, this is the best thing I've ever read. Uh, and I said, I, I need to grow a beard to get to be cast, and I looked young, I was 29, and I, I looked about 25. Uh, and without the beard, and so I started growing a beard and kept trying to push the audition and, and uh, said, this is, I, I really want to do it, and went down and read for the guys and loved them immediately and, and felt like I was in good feature film company, which I really liked, having been on a TV show that felt very much like a TV show. So. Also, that thing about um, TV in, in back in when we did 30-something, it wasn't now it's just such a an art form now. T TV is is a whole different thing than it was during our time. Uh -huh. It was we there was such a such a um, divide between yeah, TV and movies, and we didn't feel like oh God, is it good to do a TV show? And then this was this kind of bridged the gap, and I think changed the whole course of TV history that way. <laughs> Not Absolutely. to. Not to brag. <laughs> You're completely right. There was a movie called The Big Chill that was out, I think, a year before. I remember getting the pilot script in New York, and I just thought, oh, wow, this is kind of like that movie. Just because there was never movies just about friends and group of friends and people. But I, I, it certainly didn't read like a TV show. I agree with Polly. It was was way above that. Um, <clears throat> I find that my greatest successes were things that I initially turned down. <laughs> um, but you'd think I'd learn. <laughs> um, on this one, I, I had started directing before 30-something, and I had known Ed and Marshall from the neighborhood um, beforehand, and they called me up and they said, are you interested, you know, we have this pilot we're doing, do you wanna, do you wanna act in it? And I, I said, well, I, I'm not acting anymore. 
So no. And they said, well, just, you know, just read it. See what you think. And I read it and I said, best script ever written for a pilot I've ever read, but no, I'm not, I'm not acting. And he said, well, why don't you just come down and read with the other <laughs> cast members? And I did. And then I remember, Ed, you know, you took me aside and you said, first of all, there's no way in the world this is going to go. Yeah. <laughs> and Great it, pitch. And if for some reason it goes, you can direct one of the first six. And if for some reason it goes, goes, we'll kill you off after four years. Oh. And so I said, okay. And then, and as I watched it skyrocket, I was like, oh, thank God they didn't take no for an answer. It would have been hell. It's, it's sort of hard to remember now that 30-something as a term originated from the show. It didn't exist um, before the show existed, and I just, it sort of speaks to the huge impact the show had, but at what point did you realize that 30-something was a thing, not the term, the show? <laughs> mm. Well, you, you, there's a great story that you tell about that, actually, yeah. Okay, the night of the <laughs> premiere, uh, because you have to understand, when you're, in the, when you're making television, you start shooting in July, you're in a vacuum, no one knows about your show, you're just doing this thing. And then the premiere comes in September and you find out your fate. So um, here we were in our vacuum. It premieres on ABC on Tuesday night at 10 o'clock and in Los Angeles, at the end of the show, it cuts right to the news at 11 with the local news anchor who was Tawny Little, who had been Miss America and uh, sort of a local celebrity doing, you know, anchoring the news. And her mascara is literally all the way down her cheeks and she's still sobbing. And she says, oh my God, I can't, was everybody watching that show? That show's unbelievable. And I'm sitting there staring at the television. No, Marshall, you, Marshall called me at that moment yeah. and said, oh. <laughs> That was the moment. Uh, yeah. That'll do it. <laughs> um, how about for the actors? Do you remember when you thought, oh, I'm, I've got a pretty steady line of work here for a while with this thing? You know, we did, uh, um, you know, everything was balanced by Ken Olin's cynicism. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, by the way, we should say, it, it's not really the same dynamic without Ken here. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and Patty as well. But, but Ken is about the funniest person, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. that we know. And so, so whatever we would say, he would find a way to totally take the piss out of. I, I think. I think the, <laughs> the fact that he's a not disaster here. is never gonna go. You know, that would be greeting him at the beginning of the day. You know, that I don't know what we're doing. People hate the show. Nobody's ever going to look at it. Yeah, his, you, know, you start his, to go, well, okay, you know, maybe his, that'll happen. There was a moment I had in a, in a supermarket where I realized we were affecting people emotionally. It was after an episode called Therapy where uh, my character uh, tries to avoid having sex with his wife because uh, uh, we've already shot the separation episode. And a woman, I was reaching for cream cheese, and I turned, and this woman hit me really hard right in the side of the face. I looked at her, and she says, I'm so I didn't mean to hit you. It's just, and then she dumps. She says, how could you say to your wife, don't you ever shave your legs anymore? How could you say that? And I was like, wow. You know? That's a little, it's just a TV show. Uh, I, but it was along those lines, and then, Later, Marshall and I were in New York at the Russian Tea Room trying not to get kicked out for wearing tennis shoes. Uh, and then afterwards, Marshall said, I got to show you something. And we walked down the block and there was a billboard. And what was it? I can't remember. But it's it, a BMW it, ad. Yeah. And it said 30, said, but it yeah. mimicked 30 something. Yeah. When the, the, the words started creeping into the vernacular yeah. uh, is when I realized, you know, and when Mad Magazine did us, yeah. I think that. That was it, actually. Mad Magazine, that's when we knew. When, uh, when, when they Because that for us was like the gold standard. Yeah. Dirty suffering. There was, there was also a show called In Living Color at the time, and they kicked around the idea of doing a sketch called 30-something to Life about, <laughs> <laughs> about two prisoners talking about their feelings. Well, oh, and someone brought into the office a porn tape called oh. Dirty Something. 
I hope you still yeah, have He that. was Michael Studman. <laughs> I auditioned for that. <laughs> well, when I, got, when I was cast in the pilot, and I told people I, I got a show because I was living in New York and I had to move to L.A. And they said, oh, what's the name of it? And I said, 30-something. And they said, 30 what? <laughs> and I said, something. And they said... You don't know the name of the... Yeah, yeah, me too. You don't know the name of the show you got? I went, yeah, it's 30-something. And they go, 30 what? And who's I went, oh, first? my God, something. Like it was, it was who's on first? Because nobody had heard that term. Did it, but then I guess at some point, then the network starts noticing the show that you're doing, right? Was there a moment where they were like, oh, this is real, real? Um, was, there, did you, was there a moment when you started getting notes that you weren't getting? Well, this is, this, is, this is actually really interesting because it describes a moment in television which is no longer true, but now was no longer true for a long time, but it's suddenly become true again, and that has to do with um, cable. But we, at a very early moment, just committed to each other that we were going to do just what we wanted to do. And, and the memory that I have vividly is the second episode, or the, you know, and Marshall was down on the stage directing, and I received a phone call from the network, and they had just received our scripts that we had written, the first few scripts, and they, it was a big group on the call, and they always address it as we. <laughs> we feel that this epi these episodes that you're writing, they might seem a little bit dark, and, do, and what do you think about that? And, and I said, mm, yeah. They said, well, do you think you could maybe just lighten them in some way and find the love and you know and and i took a moment and i said mm, no <laughs> and and they they said well we really think that it's important that that, that that this happens you know in the show and then as marshall described it's very important there's this hiatus because you're shooting the shows and they're not on the air yet so they're they're in terrible pucker sphincter factor fear about <laughs> what's going to happen um, and you, the key is to try to hold out long enough until you go on the air. And if you fail, well, then fuck it. It's over anyway. But, but we were fighting this sort of battle of attrition. And the idea was, they said, well, couldn't you change this? And I said, well, maybe you should find someone else who could do it better. And it was our commitment at that moment to, to be that. And the reason I'm talking about it historically is that after the FinCEN decree and the networks began to own their shows, they took on the license to tell you what to do because it was theirs. And they would have just fired us. Yeah, and they would have fired us summarily. They couldn't yeah. at that moment. And the interesting thing now is because of all these platforms and, and, and places like Netflix and Amazon who are again beginning to leave artists alone, that's one of the major reasons why you see this extraordinary you know, blossoming of originality and distinct content because it's not being homogenized by others who presume to know better. Yeah, the other thing that, that was after was our first press conference right. where uh, you know, the, the press had all looked at our pilot and we all sat on a stage similar to this and basically got skewered by everybody in the audience. And one woman even spoke up and she said, who are we supposed to love on this show? They're all so whiny. <laughs> and then she said, where's my Fred McMurray character? Um, and Nothing but a, a, a prime time soap. Yeah. I remember them saying that, you know. Murder, She Wrote was the number one show. Right. And people made their living, the television critics made their living off of reviewing television, and they were very um, smug about our, our, our inability to succeed. Uh, they felt that it was certain. Um, and it just forced us into being more of a band, a tighter band and family. One, one reviewer wrote, uh, said we were skinny white people from hell. <laughs> we were skinny at least, right? <laughs> but the awards started coming right away, right? Eventually, I mean, by the end of the season. Well, well, as I said, once it went on the air, I mean, you have to remember, this is a world in which there are only three networks and a fourth one just begun at that moment. So the fact that we were considered very marginally a hit at, or even a success, at about 25 million people watching it, now something succeeds if they manage to make a million people. So, so it was already, once we saw that it was gonna 
live, that to us was the success. We were gonna be able to continue and we had taken the high moral ground and said we weren't gonna take notes, we were just gonna do. The awards as they came, that was just unbelievably, you know, beyond anybody's imagining. With the awards too, I mean also in addition to that, you started seeing who was advertising on the show. Yeah. And when you started to see Johnson & Johnson and Cadillac, you know, the big, the big the people that spent, BMW, the big people who were spending the most on advertising, you realize we were a moneymaker. Well, uh, for the the, we found out this was the very beginning of the whole idea of demographic targeting for advertisers. It was literally just beginning in the late 80s. And after we'd been on the air for a couple of years, somebody at ABC told us. That was my friend Bill Drentel, over, about whom we named the character. Oh, yeah. Okay. He worked for an ad agency in New York. Yeah. That although we were maybe the 25th most popular show on television among that um, 18 to 34 demographic, we were number four on television. So we were, we had no idea before that. And that was why the network prized the show as much as it did, because that was the demographic they were going after. And then I guess, maybe it didn't happen this way, but at some point do you feel like, okay, now we're in a comfortable spot. Now the, the topics that, the show was very small in some ways, but also very huge in the topics that you decided to put at the forefront. Was that, did that come from a place of comfort at the network ultimately when you decide, oh, we're gonna put two gay men in bed together. We're gonna talk about the Gulf but War. But they couldn't be in bed together. They had, one of them had to have his feet on the ground, right? No, they couldn't kiss. They couldn't kiss. No, they could be in bed together, but they couldn't kiss. That was the big fight. Yeah, yeah. But what, what you're asking, here's the truth. What we wanted in the beginning was to tell stories about intimate life between people. And that meant keeping away the very big issues in life. So the idea that Nancy eventually had cancer or we dealt with somebody dying or two gay men in bed, that came later in the series, not because we were more comfortable, but because we felt we had laid the groundwork to talk about the, you know, to do an episode about one person being jealous of another person and not admitting it, you know, or how a married couple learns to talk to each other. That if you're gonna try to talk about these things, which happen to every single person on earth, you have to keep out the giant dramas because they would drown out those little things we wanted to talk well, about. And, and we, we had seen so much already on soap opera where they would address these big themes, but they were cliches. And we would say to ourselves, well, how do we do something that is about something that is true, but is not full of platitudes? And finally, I think where we came out is to say that what, what a cliche is, is a true thing that has had the authenticity drained out of it. And the key was to try to find that authenticity and ultimately earn your way up to things that were um, of greater import and greater consequence. I'd love to ask the actors if there were any particular scripts that you got and you thought, oh wow, this is really, this is really my, big, my big moment here. When I died, I was... <laughs> Spoiler, yeah, right? kind of, I don't know, had an impact. I, I tell you what, it was a joy to read everyone. You'd really see that, you know, when you see the crew, the craft service guy crying, on, sitting on an apple box uh, in the corner, you know, uh, uh, the scripts would just come one after another and you'd see we'd get in there. Most TV shows, by the time you get through the end of the first season, half the cast doesn't read them and won't for the rest of the run. Because when you're directing them, you realize when they're asking questions, why would I say this? And you're like, because it's a story point. You have to say it, you know? Uh, they don't read the scripts. We read them. Uh, and, uh, you know, every script knocked me out. Couples knocked me out right away. The pilot was probably therapy. When I read therapy, uh, and Michael J. Fox, who was a buddy of mine, called me after the episode aired and said, not only is it the best thing you've ever done, it's the best thing I've ever seen on TV. When one of those scripts, and it won Writers Guild, won the Directors Guild, uh, nominated for an Emmy, I got nominated for Emmy, that was on Patty, won an Emmy for it. It was just one of those scripts that had fairy dust on it, page after page after page, just ripped by and you were saying this is not like anything ever. 
um, and it was awarded as such. So I thought that script, and but I gotta say the funny scripts, I'd read a script and I might be in two scenes, but my scenes were funny. You know, they were, they were, they, my IQ would go down a lot when the women would write my character. Uh, I remember that. Well, what about, this is a really good, you know, David came in uh, uh, when the show had that success and created an iconic character. That's almost impossible to cut into a group of seven like he did and become one of the family. Um, it's a really good question, I think, for, for David because he was, you know, so impactful. Well, I, I did come in in the middle of the second season, so you guys already had this great momentum going. And, um, and I, I remember uh, I had done something with Ed and Marshall yeah. before. We had done a yeah. show Special. called uh, Special Bulletin. That was amazing. Which it was a great show. ATX Festival. Yeah. Should, they should. <laughs> They should do something about special bulletin. Did anybody here ever see that show? What was it about six years before thirty something? Everybody, yeah, eighty young. There's a two about a nuclear the, event. Yeah, it was one. Yeah. one. yeah, Tim's wife. It was. It was a very. <laughs> that was a very special yeah, it's, show. Really I mean, it was a one movie of the week. Yeah, but it was shot entirely in video. Yeah. And um, as if it was a live news broadcast. Yeah. yeah. So so we had so we had done that. Well, the truth is, I mean, we had we had had this extraordinary experience on it because it started our careers. But in it, David was sort of the center of it, and 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 he was extraordinary. So the idea that we would go reach out toward him was so present in our minds when we wanted to create this character. But we had no idea because I have to say one thing, and I'd love to hear you talk about this because. When you write a character, you imagine him a certain way, but he takes on a life of his own when someone appears, particularly when it's someone who you're not auditioning. It's an actor who you know and you know is going to bring something to it. And David brought something to it that was utterly unexpected. In fact, I mean, we've never said this before, but since the person's dead now, yeah. the character of Miles Gentel was basically based on Bruce Paltrow, who I had worked for very early in my career. I've never said this aloud. And Mike, and, and Mike Ovitz. Yeah, a little combination of the two, both of whom had very fast rhythms, you know, sort of ADD kind of, let's do it like that, man, not like that. And that's how we wrote this character of Miles Gentel. And in walks Clennon, who gamely tried to do that in the first episode. <laughs> You're being very kind. But that was, <laughs> it's not who he is. And so one of the joys, actually, of doing a series over time is it is improvisational, you know, and you look at, and by the way, in some way this was true of every one of our actors. Over time, you begin to see what the strengths of that actor is and you write to that strength. But we realized that we had something in David that was gold that wasn't how we first saw the character. So we just changed the character to fit him. And it just took off. I have a, a story that really illustrates well his impact on Can him. you hold that thought? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have something you'd like to say first? I, I am the boss. <laughs> you weren't the boss of me. Please, please go. Well, you're going to like this story. And it happened on the airport on the way here to this festival, actually. Um, I got to the airport and went to the Starbucks line, or whatever it was. And coffee there, bean. Coffee bean tea leaf, thank you. And I, it was a line. There was a line. So I was going this way, and David was already at the, at the counter. And we said, oh, hey, how you doing? We started talking across the little line thing. And as we moved on and David went to order his coffee, these two women said, we're talking, and they said, well, ask him, ask him, pointing at me. And I, and they, and I turned around, and they said, is that David Clennon? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, it is. <laughs> and they said, that's great, that's great. He was on that show 30-something, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, he was. <laughs> 
And then as I, I kind of turned and started walking away again, and they, and they said, excuse me, excuse me, were you on that show too? <laughs> yes, I but said, he died early. Well, he, he died young. I said, I said, yes, I was. And they said, which character did you play? <laughs> and I said, thinking, you know, Gary. And they were like, hmm. <laughs> and to try and help them along, I said, you know, the guy who died. And they went, Hmm. <laughs> so it I, an I, I only did uh, about 20 episodes of the show, and this is a this is a compliment to uh, Ed and Marshall. Uh, they paid me for 10, about 10 more episodes that I didn't do, <laughs> and that's this is what was so smart. I think uh, I, I I'm kind of clueless about the medium and, you know, how it works and everything, but I think you made decisions as you went along yes. with this character to use him very sparingly. Paying don't you to no, stay don't, away. Don't, don't say anything yet, Ed. I'm complimenting. I'm complimenting <laughs> you. So, it, they realized, I think, that episodes that that character did not appear in, he was still a kind of uh, presence. He was a threat that sort of hung over other other people. And you did how many episodes altogether? Oh, 80. 80 or 90 80, but episodes, like, what, what, what and he only appeared to, in 20. But what you're getting to is actually even more interesting, which is that now what a writer's room does is they get together and they plan an entire season and they have the whiteboard and the cards and everything is thought through. We never had a writer's room. That was the two of us. We had some extraordinary writers with us and they would come in one at a time and we would work out the stories together. And it was chronological maybe, but it was also based on what seemed to be working. And so it was curated, I think is the word I'd have to say. And, and it was, it was hand-to-mouth. If a plot seemed to be working, then we could elaborate on it, as opposed to something having been overdetermined before the fact. And that's the, for instance, David, we got those extra episodes because we didn't know how many we would want, and we wanted to be sure that if we had something that was working, that we can then spin it out. There's another piece of that that's really important, I think. We live in a world today of serialized storytelling on television. And we all love it, by the way, I love it. But there's a limitation to that. Go ahead. Get <laughs> We've only been partners for 42 years. It's like, you know. Um, there's a limitation to that, which is that every episode becomes caught up in trying to move the story forward of all the characters. When we did 30-something, each episode existed unto itself as a meditation upon a theme. And, you know, yes, something was going to happen in some overarching way across the season, but it didn't matter from episode to episode that we advanced that story. And it gave us the freedom so that, you know, in the episode where the guys lost their business, which we called success, even though it was the opposite of success, Everything in that story, the other pieces of the story could reflect upon what that meant, the shame, the sense of loss, the, the horror at being a, feeling like a failure. Everything could concentrate on that theme instead of having to serve some greater thing. Well, you know, this person has to have this happen because in the next episode, that's going to happen. So um, for us, it was a great luxury to be able to just tell a story about an idea. And that was... Usually these days, that's the dictates of a network saying you have to keep these characters vivid every week. And it, what it creates to me is a kind of Dickensian thing where the cliffhanger is the thing trying to make you gorge and then go on to the next to get that sticky thing that they want um, you know, for viewing. But to me, something is lost as well, which is something classic in a form of you know, conflict and denouement and, and catharsis because you don't get it nearly as much or as easily, or if you do, it's done in a very sort of quick way, and, and this allowed us to do things that were deeper. And I guess as actors, is that sort of 
is it nice to have that so you're not having the conversation that is, so where's, my, where's this going for my character? What, what's, what's about to happen Kind now? of oh. like life, yeah. that you, you don't really know what's going to happen to you next. And, and that they couldn't really tell us either because they didn't know um, was kind of fun and exciting. It was great. Yeah. I mean, it was great. The, the, uh, one of my favorite things, I went in, I, we didn't go spend a lot of time in their offices. You'd go up and tell them a little bit about your life, and then it would end up being there. I told them my mom was an alcoholic, and Eileen Brennan shows up, and she's been an alcoholic. And I'm like, <laughs> easy, easy. <laughs> and, and I should have known, because in their office, on the wall, was a cartoon. <laughs> and there was a picture of a guy in his office, desperately trying to write, and around the office are, are wadded up attempts at, at what he was trying to write, and wadded up with frustration, and the room's full. In and amongst all of the room full were like a dozen dogs, and the dogs are all looking at their master, watching intently as he tries to write. And in the door, and standing, leaning against the doorframe is the befuddled wife who's looking at her idiot husband and all the dogs and his attempts to try to write something original and the line is why don't you write about dogs <laughs> and you realize I should have known from that they would steal from all of our lives <laughs> and their own lives and that is so much what they did so bravely uh, that each episode it just sparked of that, that original, this was about a fight they'd had or about something they weren't handling well. And if they learned stuff from us, it made its way in. And, and anyway. The gynecologist. Oh, yeah, that was Melanie. Sissy. Why, why I, I was, uh, <laughs> I was I in a you. movie with David, a movie called Missing, that um, Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemmon starred in. And we went to the Cannes Film Festival with it. It won the Palm d'Or. And Sissy was in her eighth month of pregnancy with her daughter, Skylar Fisk, who's lived here and played music here. And um, they had to bring, she had a very old gynecologist in Beverly Hills, and he was too old to go. So they took the young, hot gynecologist <laughs> from his Beverly Hills practice to go with her. So I was with Sissy and Jack the whole time, and the gynecologist who was with her. So we wound up having a really fantasy fling in the south of France. For the, and I came back and I was telling everybody about it. And one day we're sitting at the table read of a new episode and on the front page, the title is, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love with a wonderful gynecologist. <laughs> and I looked at them in horror. <laughs> but it was a great episode for Polly and I to play where we both fall in love with a gynecologist. <laughs> They had to shoot through my legs like <laughs> Had to. I, I seem to remember you asking them. Well, yeah, I asked them. <laughs> Polly has great You know, you legs. were talking about um, the themes and shows. Like one of the favorite episodes that they ever wrote for Melissa, and it was only on one time because ABC wouldn't allow it. It was an episode called Strangers, and it had... There were two storylines in it. One was where the two guys were in bed together. It was a love affair between David Marshall Grant's character and Peter Frechette, his friend. And the, and the other story was Melissa and her young boyfriend, Lee. And the theme was how we sabotage relationships. Like, that was what you were talking about. And that whole episode was about that, how we can get in the way, because Melissa felt he was to, you know, younger, and at that time, 30 years ago, that was maybe a bigger deal, and um, the show was only on once, and what was so amazing for me playing Melissa, they had written a fantasy sequence where in her mind, she has a fantasy. I had to play three characters, basically, Melissa in the office of a boxing ring, and everybody had parts in the fantasy, and it was black and white, and then there was Kid Stedman, which was young Melissa against the judge, which was the all-knowing judgmental. So it was like a battle in her mind about should she or shouldn't she do this. And I remember I had to work with a stunt person and learn two sides of a boxing match, like choreographed, because I had to play both parts. 
We had that uh, amazing Steadicam operator I was boxing to. It was this really ornate sequence, and everybody was in it. You were the judge, and Polly, you were my trainer, and it was really, it was a wonderful I don't think piece. I was in it. But it was... It kept me out. You weren't been dead at the time. He was dead. But it was only on once because ABC got so much flack with the two guys in bed story that it only aired once. Oh. Did you not want to talk about that? <laughs> you, 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 you're, you're not remembering that, that, that part of the history fondly, the ABC portion of this. No. Oh, boy. No. Um, it's an no. amazing episode, and thank you so much for putting it on the air in the first oh, place. Yeah. Thank you oh. so much. You know, in the, in the original script... Uh, which Richard Kramer wrote, uh, the two guys were in bed together, and then they kiss. And uh, we turned in the script to the network, and we got a call from the head of, of uh, standards and practices in New York. And normally, we dealt with one of their flunkies in Los Angeles. It was, it was extremely rare. In fact, it never happened before that the head of standards and practices would call us. There was this guy named Al Schneider. And you know, we both get on the phone and he says, all right, I have some things to tell you and this is not going to be a conversation. I'm just telling you what's going to be. He said, ABC is in support of two gay men being together. ABC is in support of two gay men being in bed together. ABC will never allow two gay men to kiss, period, over and out. And we sat there dumbfounded. And I got into this huge fight with him. Ed was laughing. <laughs> like, I just, I just went after him. And, um, and it got really ugly. And at one point, I said to him, I said, I can't believe as a Jew you're saying this to me. Because he, we he knew we were Jewish. And I was, he said, what does my being Jewish have to do with this? I said, who do you think Hitler went after in 1936 besides the Jews? Oh. The homosexuals. Oh, my God, he went insane. <laughs> he started screaming at me, how dare you? Like, oh, it was, a, it was one of the worst phone calls in the world. But we were ready to, we were not going to take that kiss out. That was it. We were ready to do battle. Um, and then... What happened was um, David Marshall Grant, who was one of the actors, um, God bless him, I love him, he's so talented, he has a wonderful career. You know, he had some concerns himself. He was worried, his agents, you know, he's, he, he came to Richard and he said, I'm a little worried about this. And Richard came to us and he said, you know, I've been thinking about this and I really believe that the most subversive and revolutionary thing about this episode is that two gay men are in bed and it's just absolutely normal and they're just talking about nothing. That's what's revolutionary, is that it's not a big deal. And I don't need the kiss. And so... It bespeaks something about, about same-sex marriage and it's, it's, what, it's indebtedness to television. I think that, frankly, if you think about the number of relationships that were normalized and, and I think that, unlike a lot of other political issues, I think it dug in in a very particular way uh, to households that would otherwise not have even you know, thought about it or would have been you know, thought of its strangeness. But because it was in their living room, I think, and so consistently on different shows, I know we were among the first, but many people then started to do it. I think that really was a significant part and because of the normalization you're describing. Absolutely, and there wasn't the whole, on a very special episode of 30-something. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, you never did that with any of the things you tackled. No. <laughs> we have to take a quick break. Uh, you mean we get to take a break and be offered something awesome? Yes, that is what I meant. I thought so. More of the TV campfire and great TV conversations right after this sweet offer. So here's the thing, which, Kate, you know very well about me. 90% of my wardrobe is skirts and dresses because jeans are so hard for me to find. They just don't fit my body. They're not comfortable. Until, until now. Until now. But <laughs> honestly, like, Distilled came along and they ship right to me. I get to try them on in the comfort of my own home. And if they don't fit, then I get to send them back and for free, try a new pair and voila, 
actually found a pair of jeans that fit and that I love and that I want to wear as much as my skirt and dresses. Like, this feels like a miracle that just happened. Here's the thing. Like, sometimes you need to walk around for a little. Like, trying them on in a dressing room for, like, five seconds is not going to tell you whether or not you like these jeans. I got the Power Stretch black ones. The fact that they have the right amount of stretch, they truly do go all the places in my life. Like, I can wander around the house in them. I can go to work in them. I can go to meetings in them. I can get on a plane with them. I mean, it's the truth. We transition from a lot of settings all the time, from meetings to recordings to drinks to hanging out to definitely sitting on the couch and watching TV. And you want jeans that not only look good, but that are just super comfortable. I was very excited to wear these, and I maybe have worn them a few too many times without washing them. And the best part, they're affordable. Like finding something that actually fits and actually looks good and that you want to wear that is within a certain price range is pretty miraculous. Yeah. The ones that I got were $85. And then on top of that, you get 20% off. So go to distilled, D-S-T-L-D dot com, and you can get 20% off your first pair by using the code TV campfire at checkout. D-S-T-L-D dot com. You're going to find your next favorite pair of jeans. Um, you did technically kill off two people on this panel. We just well, one. You, you, no, you killed Miles, didn't you? No. No. I thought you killed him in, off. In, uh, once and again. Oh, yeah. We yes. Killed him later. <laughs> killed him right. later. Right. Yeah. They've killed off. Very good, way. Bill. We kept him alive. It, we kept him he alive knows in our his cell stuff. for several years and then killed him. Well, you know, it's a funny thing because... Obviously, we had, t- we had talked to Peter about this and, and the cast, and it was a significant thing for all of us. We, let me back up. There were so many things that were mirrors of what we were writing about. There were marriages and divorces and the birth of children and fights and things that were reflected. But there was also death. And we were determined from the very beginning that that would be a part of the show. But it had to find its way and the right way for it to happen. It's become a kind of trope now of television where, you know, and something like Game of Thrones, in fact, depends on that anxiety about who's going to die when. Um, But at the time, it was a very, you know, radical notion that we would just take this beloved character. But I think also, unlike Game of Thrones, where you get, you know, the advantage of seeing them cut their head off or stab them or, you know. When when I first uh, heard that I was going to die um, on the show in a car accident, I know everyone thinks it was a bike, right? How many people thought it was a bike? No. Yeah. In the car. Thank you. <laughs> that. <laughs> Come on up here. Come on up here. Um, when I first heard it was going to be the irony of the death. Um, <laughs> I thought, oh, this would be fun. I get to do a big car crash scene, you know, where the semi runs into me and I get to die my last gasp on the, on the streets of the Schuylkill. Um, but what they did, which is, which is, yeah, setting up a trope to a degree of people, you know, leads getting killed off. But with the way they did it was so interesting and so much more powerful, which was instead of all that, all we got was a phone call. And that's how it happens. That's how, I mean, the living are the ones who experience the death, you know. Um, and when I saw that, I, it, my first reaction was, wait a minute, I don't get to do the car crash? <laughs> but it ended up being so, so powerful because that I relate to as, you know, as someone still in the land of the living. Um, and I think that's a different thing than what's become the trope now, Ed. I think it's... It's uh, much more graphic, the deaths, and they're much more melodramatic. And, and this something... is more subversive somehow. Yeah. It really well, was. it's real, because usually when any of us hear of somebody died, it's a phone call. I mean, it's, right. that's what's more real than being there, and nobody's really there. Yeah, I was, I was actually watching the episode last night, and it, it's just so remarkable because there's no speech about it, and there's no delivery of, it's just, I mean, he literally says, he's dead. Right. And then it happens again and again because people don't actually perform a soliloquy when they're telling yeah. people they care about that someone they care deeply about has died. But it's just remarkable. It's like an incredibly quiet episode. When you, Timmy, you, you talked about that moment, actually, that you're there with the phone call with Kenny. And in that same episode is also the episode, of course, and that was the intention, which is that 
the best thing happens and the worst thing happens because that's the episode where Patty finds out that she's in remission and is going to be fine. And, and, and so he had to actually be in both aspects of it because he's there with Kenny in terms of the phone call and with Patty in the scene. And then Kenny asked me to watch him when he got the phone call. You know, we became such the team sport of He, he was show. directing it. Ken was directing it. Ken, was, and, Ken directed the episode um, and did just a great job. But he didn't want to be thinking like a director when he makes the call to the, he gets a message to call the police, right? And isn't that what happened? Yeah. And he gets on the phone, and so he asked me to watch his performance. And he had just directed me, and we were in the same part of a set, a hospital set, 15 feet away. Uh, we're waiting for the, they end the half hour with Nancy's gonna be okay, and they start the next half hour with Gary's dead. It seemed like, if I remember it right. And that was one of our days at work. Um, and it was a, you know, for us, it was a, it was a, one of those days, it wasn't, it was a very difficult, there wasn't a lot of deep breathing on that day, and there wasn't a lot of laughing on that day, and normally on the, on the show, it was a lot of laughing, Patty Wedding, and I could never get through one take without giggling at each other in, when we would fight, because we loved each other, and we were really good friends, and we would make each other laugh, especially when it was really good, but that day was tough. Um, well, there was weight on the actors. When they say that they do it in a phone call, what they're doing is making us play it. And our reactions to the death are what are the audience's reactions, because they were living the show with us. We represented them. And I remember the moment of finding out that she's gonna be okay after this long journey of leaving her and then getting her back. And then all of a sudden she got sick and she was the most important thing to me. Um, and I only wanted to do it one time, and we had to do it twice, and Kenny was really apologetic. It was very quiet on the set that day. There wasn't a lot of noise. Everybody knew what we were shooting, uh, and it was, it was very focused. You know, one of the hardest dilemmas we faced in the entire series was whether Patty Weddick's character would live or die as a result of the cancer. Uh, remember, 30 years ago, um, you know, the prognosis, especially um, uh, for ovarian cancer, was not very good. And our initial thought was that she would die. And I have to say, um, we were so influenced that we had hundreds and hundreds of letters. Once we started doing the cancer story, so many people wrote in, and it became so important to them that she be a symbol of hope. And for us as filmmakers, this was a very confusing thing because we did not see ourselves as in some way responding that way. We, we, we saw ourselves as we have a vision, we're gonna follow our vision. Sometimes life is very upsetting, but these letters kept pouring in and we were going, should she live, should she die? You feel like this horrible, weird God, you know? <laughs> and then Ed comes up with the idea and we could go on and on about where this comes from in our own lives, the way in which the best and the worst has come at the same time. But Ed comes up with the idea, okay, let her live, but somebody else dies. And it ended up being... It's, actually, it's, actually, it's actually based on a, probably a, um, a, a very famous um, French absurdist play that talks about Christ and Barabbas, uh, because um, uh, one of them gets crucified and the other one gets off. Yeah. In an odd twist that I noticed last night, Patricia Heaton plays the oncologist, yes. which I'd completely yeah. forgotten about. The, yeah. the, the only thing um, I want to add to the death of Gary at this moment is one of the bad things about doing it the way they devised was in that episode, all I got to really play was a dead body. <laughs> <laughs> and so I get to- But very well. My, one of my finer moments. Um, and I get to the set and they put up all the dead makeup on and suddenly I walk out and realize we're at a real morgue. And I'm going, ooh, interesting. Go in there and there's a real drawer. They pull out, they put me in a body bag and my makeup, zip it up and shut the drawer. <laughs> and I'm lied in there waiting for the action. You know, someone, I wouldn't hear it if they said action, and, but for someone to open the freaking drawer. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, am I like experiencing my own death? 
<laughs> this very existential moment inside this drawer in a real morgue as dead Gary. Um, so thanks. Thank you. Anytime. Best work you ever did on the show. And you mentioned that Ken directed the episode, but um, a lot of you ended up directing episodes of the show, which, I, correct me if I'm wrong, that wasn't very commonplace at the time. No, I, it, no. look, Marshall and I were intent in our careers to be directors as much as writers from the very beginning, and we had trained as that, met in that, that context. And it was also something that was very, I think, important to us to create as much of a, of, of a repertory company as it was to just do a television show. And it's not a, mis not a surprise because Patty Wedig and Timmy and Polly had all come from the theater and, and from repertory companies, in fact. And there's something, that's a word that, that, that means a lot to someone who's been in it. And if you haven't, you don't quite know what it means, but it goes well beyond being an actor or being a director. It's, um, I was raised with all the guys from Steppenwolf in Chicago and, and if you look at the work that they've done and why, it's because they were, from the very beginning, sitting there in dailies, sitting there in, ta in table reads, they're talking about their lives, um, and that became something larger than itself. And part of that was to bring them even deeper into our process, and some of it's enlightened self-interest because they become much more complicit and, and, and um, compliant as actors when they realize the burdens on a director. Just a cog in the wheel. Yeah. yeah. But I also think when you look at all of their careers and the longevity of their careers after having done a television show, that's actually quite unique. And when I see Peter's show now coming out there after Kenny's show taking over ABC and, you know, Polly's about to have a movie come out and Melanie's about to have a movie come out and Tim, I feel a little bit like the sort of the... the um, Apostles have sort of gone forward and subversively found their way into the rest of the cultural landscape from that, that, that would little make repertory you, company. Oh, that would absolutely. make you Christ, by the way. <laughs> that would make you Christ. We, Barabbas. Barabbas. we, we used to call um, the directing process on 30-something, which was, you know, that's one of the things about directing. You don't get an apprentice uh, program generally. You just get thrown in. But this was an apprenticeship program. We got to actually learn how to direct. We used to call it the Herskovitzwick Samurai School of Directing. <laughs> because they, both being directors, they really, really uh, made us step up and, and deliver. You know, we'd go down, I remember <laughs> the first time I directed on 30-something. <laughs> He's cringing already. Um, Ed took me down to the set, and I was like explaining to him, you know, what I was, what I was, gonna do what I was gonna shoot and he kept going ah. <laughs> and as he walked away someone went, was walking the other direction he just said I, he's not getting it he's not getting it uh, and you know at first that's that's staggering um, but what it made you do was go home and go what am I not getting what am I not learning what am I not you know it made you go home and do the extra work the extra preparation and that's sort of the way I've done it ever since. Um, and, and I think that's true for all of us. There was this real value in directing on the show. It wasn't just uh, uh, for hire, like a weekly hire. It was. I went, I went to, uh, there was, uh, we talked about it last night. We got to hang last night, which was really fun. Uh, but I, I, was, I directed, first episode I directed where there were flashbacks of Ellen's character, it was a Polly episode. And I went to him and I said, um, I, I want to shoot. Um, I want to shoot these flashbacks um, handheld. And they went. <sighs> I said, I want. I want to shoot them at 30 frames. And they went. Oh. I said, I want to shoot them in black and white. And they went. Oh. <laughs> they look and they looked at each other and looked at me and said, It's your movie. And that never happens. Yeah. There's always somebody that wants to feel they made. You, you, the ability to make your own movie, we get it when we direct pilots, we get it when we direct movies or miniseries, but in network television, it's very rare. They made you feel like you had an important job and you were, they needed your A-game. And I think it bled into all of our attitudes on writing, directing, yeah. the importance of filmmaking, how to make a good film. It all really came from these two guys and our longevity, and Ken Olin, if he was here, would say the exact same thing. It really came from working under two masters, and they are masters. Right. 
Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Um, it's a great note to end it on. I want to thank you all for such a phenomenal show that means so much to so many people. Um, it really changed the face of television. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us around the TV campfire. Stay tuned each Thursday for live releases from the festival, in addition to bonus content and exclusive interviews and new original series coming soon. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at ATXFestival and let us know what you think using our official hashtag, hashtag the TV campfire. Please rate and subscribe to the TV campfire on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 8 of ATX Festival will be June 6th through 9th, 2018. And for more information on attending, please visit www.atxfestival.com.